Hi, and welcome to the Intacting Minds podcast. I'm Savannah Schulz, and you may be already able to guess from my voice, it is an exciting day today. We all set up in our new podcast studio, and after months of coordinating, planning, and researching, we're ready to press record in a new season on interdisciplinary research. Season two is entitled Research and Interaction, and is filled with incredible, fascinating projects working at the intersection of research and some form of public or practitioner-based space. So research in the interaction with political decision-making, art experience, clinical practice, to just name a few of the projects we will talk to. But today, and without further ado, it is time for episode one. And who better could kick us off in this season than the brilliant Rebecca Baglini and Michael Bang-Peterson, who have joined us today from the HOPE Project, which is the largest Danish social sciences research endeavor on the COVID epidemic. So welcome, you two. I'm so glad you could join us. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, to start us off, I think it would be really interesting to hear where you come from. So you do research together, but you also have past as individual people. Um, Rebecca, could you share a bit about kind of your background and who you are? Yes, I did my PhD training in more traditional theoretical linguistics. I also did quite a bit of um, fieldwork in West Africa um, on, on linguistic diversity. I specialized in syntax, which is structure and language, and semantics, which is meaning and language. And since my PhD, I've transitioned to be um, a computational linguist and a specialist in natural language processing. So that's basically just using computational tools and methods and models to extract information from linguistic data. And that can be to answer questions about language itself or to answer other sorts of social or behavioral science questions which is what I've been doing on the HOPE project. Cool. Could you give us one example outside of the HOPE project? Uh, of the kind of research that I've done in, in linguistics? Um, so one of the things I'm really interested in is um, how uh, speakers of languages uh, use the particular affordances of their language to talk about cause and effect. So every language has basic ways, sort of grammatical strategies for talking about causality, but they vary quite a bit from language to language. Um, and I'm really interested in coming up with uh, theoretical models to represent how this works. And we jump into that a bit when talking about conspiracy data, I think, yeah. and kind of how we reason about causality. Exactly. And then, Michael, you're not based at the IMC, but at political science. So what do you do there? So I, I'm a political psychologist. Uh, I study the psychology behind uh, political attitude formation and political behavior. And and prior to the pandemic, I been doing sort of a lot of different things. So I've been focusing on on what are the consequences of being afraid of uh, infections? What what are the political consequences when, when you are afraid of infection spread? Uh, and I've been doing work on, on crises, especially the Muhammad cartoon crisis here in Denmark, uh, and also what happens uh, when terrorist attacks uh, emerge. And then finally, I've also been doing a, a bit of work on, on misinformation and conspiracy theories. And, and that sort of combination, uh, made me uh, ready to, to, to face the pandemic, even though that I didn't know that that was what I was preparing for. Um, taking us back to that time. So it's early 2020. We're in the spring. You're at home ranting to your wife about, um, how you're perceiving the pandemic so far. 
Could you take us back of why you were um, upset about the Danish discourse at that point? Yes. Yeah, so one of the key insights from the work we have been doing on on crisis responses in the public, both to terrorist attacks and and also during the Mohammed Khartoum crisis, was that people were in fact uh, able to sort of keep their balance, especially if they received clear communication from authorities. Um, and and what I saw in these very early stages of the of the pandemic, well, even before it was officially called a pandemic, uh, was there was this sense that uh, Danish politicians were not really happy about uh, telling the sort of the whole truth, like what is it in fact that we will be be facing? Rather, they had this phrase say, well, it's important not to panic. And, and, and that phrase was <laughs> what exactly triggered me because it suggested that, that they were in a sense afraid of, of giving it away, uh, because how would we, the people, uh, then react? And I think that was, that was wrong. And that was what sort of actually got me into, to the whole, uh, uh, public debate about pandemic response. And I think it's a beautiful story beginning of a research project. So you tweeted about what you were noticing in the media. Carlsberg and the government picked up on it and, and started engaging in a discussion about can we make research about it? Yes, exactly. So, so often uh, one, one would imagine that, that uh, social media criticism does not necessarily lead to anything anything good uh, and and especially not that that if you are criticizing the government on social media that that actually makes them reach out but but it did in this in this particular situation and what is the hope project then that you're now running both in in, in different capacities so the the hope project is essentially an attempt to try to understand the the non-medical parts uh, of the pandemic how how it is that uh a crisis like this influences uh society at large uh and 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 how we can understand all the information that is being is being spread uh doing uh a crisis like this and 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 how that makes people uh respond and what are the the ways that uh, what what are the types of information that makes people respond in in helpful ways and in not so helpful ways And uh, you're, so it's, I think one of the largest projects at the IMC so far that I have seen around, there is qualitative research. And I think we're not going to dig deep into this today. Um, but Rebecca, you're also running the kind of social media harvesting part of the project a lot. Um, what is the role of your project site? Kind of what is your team doing? Yeah, so I've been working with uh, the Center for Humanities Computing, which is based here at the Interacting Minds Center, since the onset of the HOPE project to do basically large-scale, real-time media monitoring. So it's not just social media, but also uh, traditional news media um, in Denmark and and abroad. Um, so since day one of the project, um, we've been doing um, near-comprehensive real-time collection of all um, Danish, Swedish, and Norwegian tweets. Um, so that's everything, not just the tweets about uh, COVID-19 or the pandemic, but everything. So this actually allows us to look at, um, for instance, what proportion of the daily discourse is about COVID-19 um, throughout the whole pandemic period. Um, we've also been collecting um, newspaper data through our partners at um, the company InfoMedia. So we also have daily news coverage from the major newspapers in all three of these countries. Um, so a lot of our work has been focused on the pandemic in uh, in Denmark, but we're also able to do some, some cross-cultural, cross-country analyses as well. Um, 
And one of the things we've been looking at is, is sort of how do people make sense of and cope with uncertainty in a highly diverse and often disordered information landscape? So you're getting um, information from um, policymakers and from the government through official channels. You're also getting information filtered through the news, both locally and from whatever you're exposed to um, in the global news, and then also, of course, through social media. Um, and so this has been, yeah, one of the, the main things that we're looking at is, is how, how does the discourse on social media sort of follow or track uh, what's being discussed in the news? Where does it diverge? Where does unverified information or even conspiracy narratives, where do they emerge and, and why? So yeah. it's a bit of descriptive what is going on at the time, but I think you're doing something quite unique by sharing it back with um, decision makers, with the public. So you have this weekly blog. How are you navigating this kind of capturing of data, but then also feeding it back into society? Yeah, that's been really important. Um, I think um, we've always been really emphasizing in this project um, the accessibility and availability of our data in the spirit of, of transparency. But it's not really enough, especially with my group working with such big, big data sets. It's really not enough to just, you know, release the data in big, uninterpretable dumps to the public. Um, so we've actually spent quite a bit of time working on um, apps and web portals where um, interested parties, journalists, members of the public, or even policymakers can interact with the data and look at trends or um, longitudinal patterns themselves. Um, I think we've also done a pretty good job through the HOPE reports that were released throughout the pandemic to make a, a pretty you know, accessible and transparent reporting of, of our recent findings. We've also written a lot of sort of public-facing blog posts. Um, yeah, and that's all, all kind of contributed to the you know, the public facing aspect of the Hope Project. While while we're also doing you know general research and publishing in more narrow academic um, publications as well. And I think that's part of of the what makes this uh, project uh, different from many other projects because. Often uh, the the dissemination part is is something that that comes after all the research uh, had, have been done. But but here the the idea was that dissemination is a, a central part of of the whole uh, idea uh, behind the project. So that we would actually start with with sharing the data and sort of show what it is that that we are seeing and then afterwards we would go into more traditional research mode and and do do the academic articles and and of course the reason for that was that we was in this uh, unprecedented uh, crisis situation and it was crucial to get a sense of where where is the public uh, what what is happening on social media do do people support uh what is uh, being done do they comply with with uh, restrictions are they are, are there things that needs to be better communicated uh is there wrong information out there that needs to be 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 countered um and and all those crucial questions uh require this rapid rapid sharing so so we we did a lot of thinking about how could we, how could we do that in a in a way that that was uh, was transparent as rebecca was was saying uh 
uh, and and at the same time uh, sort of put the data out there, but also uh, sort of provided all the caveats. Um, and and I think one one of the uh, one of the things was the the active sharing. Uh, but but also that a lot of what we shared was was in a way pretty simple uh, that that it wasn't sort of deep uh, causal claims like that's for the academic articles but just sort of showing what is at a descriptive level going on right now uh, in the public. How is it for you being not just gathering the data but being part of the data because. I don't know. I followed you on Twitter and read the blogs and that affected my behavior responding to the pandemic. So by interacting with the data, you also became part of it. How was that? Yes, I think I think that's absolutely uh, true. And in that sense, it's, it's a very weird uh, research project uh, because as you are saying, we, we are not just collecting the data, we are also uh, we're also shaping uh, the data as we as we go uh, along because the whole project has been uh, covered a lot in in the Danish news. So the data that we have been collecting has been sort of spread out and and then had uh, these kinds of second order effects. And um, it's difficult to to sort of think think about what that actually means. But but of course it 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 has the the consequence that we cannot analyze the data without thinking uh, through our own role uh, in it. How about you? Well, I think um, Michael's a better person to talk to about being part of the data uh, than me. I never tweet, whereas Michael has become one of the <laughs> most prominent voices on Danish Twitter during this time. Um, but yeah, I think I think that has been a really strange aspect of working on this project is that we are producing this these um, these reports and this research in real time as we are actually experiencing this pandemic unfold um, in our society. Um, and in some ways, that's that's actually really galvanizing. Um, you feel the you know acuteness of the work in your own sense of uncertainty, in your own uh, sort of feelings of of anxiety and. You know, What's, what's the right course? What's going to happen next? Is this policy decision going to be the right one? Will there be uptake? You can sort of interrogate yourself in those moments as well. Um, that's been really interesting. It also can be, I think, it can be galvanizing. It can also be kind of exhausting because uh, there's no turning off. Um, there's no turning off the COVID news and media and discourse when you get to work. So, yeah, especially during, I think, 2020, um, I think we all experienced a little bit of that. Yes, for for sure. Like it, uh, it was uh, COVID twenty four hours. Twenty four seven. Yeah, really. Um, but it kind of digging into the data and what what you discussed earlier. So one of the themes that kept on coming up when I was looking for your blog post and things preparing for this episode was this topic of trust and how important trust was. And you also didn't just gather Scandinavian data, but also data in Germany which has a very different trust landscape. Could you kind of elaborate on what you found there a bit? Yes, so one of the key uh, findings of the whole project is is the importance of, uh, of trust that uh, that a the pandemic response is is a, a public good that is co-produced between authorities and and citizens and and that means that uh, citizens need to, 
to trust the authorities that the advice that they're getting is, is, is sound. They also need to trust each other that, that everyone is contributing. Um, and, and then I think a, a final point, which we have been trying to emphasize a lot in the whole project is to say, well, it's also the authorities that needs to trust the public that they need to, uh, have trust uh, in in that the public can manage uh, uncertainty, that they can deal with uh, negative information, with trade-offs, and and so on. So it's everyone needs to to trust everyone, so to speak. And and there are certain countries that are in historically in a in a in a better uh, position with regards to trust. So the Scandinavian countries have higher trust levels uh, historically, and. And that makes it easier to deal with a crisis like like this. And it's very, very difficult to to build trust doing a crisis. Uh, of it, it seems that you can you can easily lose trust uh, doing a crisis as as an authority, but it, but it's very difficult to build it. Um, I think that is my direct question. So we hear more and more about B four and B five variants coming out of South Africa. There's news that there might be a new wave coming in the fall. Um, what advice did you take away from your project to kind of moving forward? So there are some countries who had trust in Denmark is traditionally a very trustful nation in relationship to the government. But how about Germany or the US where the kind of trust is very um, tricky, I think, for especially minority groups in the society? Yes, so I, I think uh, United States uh, is is an example of of what happens when when you don't have uh, these uh, different relationships of of trust. And uh, Donald Trump was was uh, out uh, admitting that he sort of played down the the coronavirus uh, in order to not uh, produce this panic. Uh, so he didn't trust the public, and and that meant that the messaging was not. Uh, very clear from the beginning, to to put it mildly, uh, and also we can see that that there are uh, that that the whole response have been been polarized in in United States to an extent it hasn't been in in Denmark, and that's that's uh, partly due to the lack of trust between different political and uh, and demographic groups. So so I think the United States is unfortunately a, a good example of what happens when you when you lack trust and i think one of the one of the interesting things is that in uh, in november 2019 just as the first uh uh cases of coronavirus emerged in in wuhan then then there was a report uh, being published uh, which was a, a global assessment of which countries were best uh, suited to deal with a pandemic and and that report said, uh, well, the the best country will is United States that is optimally suited to deal with a pandemic. But but it seems that there are some of these more sort of soft humanities or social science factors that wasn't really taken into account. Uh, what was the judgment back then based on? Was it the infrastructure for medical services? Or? That that played yeah. a, a very large role. It it was not that they weren't aware of of these other factors uh, such as as trust, and they were referenced. But I I I don't think it was taken seriously enough. Um, and you said this wonderful sentence um, in in another podcast that you're hosting together with Oliver Scott Curry that um, this wasn't just a medical crisis, this was a crisis about communication and leadership. 
sorry, um, where do you both see the role of social science? And I think you, Rebecca, said earlier that um, part of a, like you, you can't say that much because you're not so much publicly facing, but I think political scientists have a tendency to be in a space in interaction where um, both of us, I think, find ourselves in spaces where we normally don't interact and uh, don't have that role of interaction. Yeah. Well, I think social scientific perspectives and insights on you know, is, is really essential for epidemiology. And that's been a really big lesson of the HOPE project and of you know, this pandemic in general. So for making effective evidence-based uh, interventions and for policymaking, um, no matter how good the scientific or medical evidence is for a given intervention, its success depends on so many different social and human factors. Right. So how much trust is there in the policymakers and the institutions? Uh, how well um, is the sort of rationale and the evidence for the intervention communicated? Um, how will the intervention um, or the policy affect different populations, especially vulnerable subpopulations or um, marginalized groups? And so it's absolutely essential um, to take social and behavioral, behavioral insights into account. Do you see a shift there as well since the pandemic that social science might suddenly play a bigger role in um, decision making? I I think that there are uh, indications of that. So so this week I was at a at a conference uh, which was essentially a medical conference on on evidence based prevention, but but we were quite a few uh, social scientists as and and the discussion was very much oriented towards polarization, trust, and these kinds of things. So I, I think that there has been an increased recognition of of the importance of 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 these things, and that's also what I'm that I'm hearing from from some of the the people in 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 other places who are in like medical organizations that there is a a growing recognition. Uh, that uh, one thing is that you develop a vaccine fast, but in the end, you really need people to to take that vaccine, and there you you need different a different tool set uh, than than what is is normally used within the medical sciences. So understanding also how people respond to information and behavior. Exactly. Um, kind of bringing us back to this trust, and you said uncertainty earlier, Rebecca. There was a lot of groups during the pandemic, and still now. In, in this kind of weird space for most countries that are, are we in an endemic situation or not, um, where conspiracy theories have risen a lot, where trust, um, social media have played a huge role in kind of spreading information or misinformation. Um, you found a lot in your data, I think, also about conspiracies. Well, actually, um, less than you might expect if you're comparing to, say, social media in the US. So as Michael's already mentioned a couple of times, we have a very different sort of social political landscape here, um, and that includes on social media. So the degree of, I think, polarization in the discourse about about COVID and COVID policy interventions has been um, not quite as, as much as in the U.S. However, um, there is some misinformation that we've, we've looked at um, on Danish social media. Most of the kind of concerted conspiracy Movements were organized on Facebook rather than than Twitter. So most notably, the Men in Black movement that was organizing a kind of anti-government protests throughout 2020 and 2021. So we've done some work looking at at those groups. Um, also, um, anti-government, anti-metafrogerson um, groups in particular, and sort of um, their rise in popularity towards the end of 2020 during the Minkgate 
um, scandal. Um, but I've also recently uh, been on a paper that was spearheaded by our colleagues at, at Copenhagen University on how um, people on Twitter, on Danish Twitter, counteract um, misinformation spread. So we looked specifically at misinformation about face masks on Danish Twitter. We found that overall, only about 5% of the tweets about face masks were false information. Um, and we we know from a lot of prior research that people tend to share misinformation to sort of gain status within their own social group. Um, but what we found here is that it seems like the same motivation is behind counteracting um, misinformation on Twitter. So what we found is that people who uh, counteract conspiracy theorists, um, they don't actually engage with the content substantively or contradict or provide new evidence. Instead, they tend to ridicule or use sarcasm or sort of dismiss um, the individual misinformation sharer. So it actually seems like status building is part of the motivation behind that as well. So I'd say that what we found is that um, there's not a lot of effective uh, countering of misinformation happening on the social media sphere, but there's also not an awful lot of misinformation that we found in the first place. There's a project that I'm working on with my research group now, um, which is actually designed to um, detect conspiracy theories and also unverified information spread on Danish social media. And it's designed in such a way that we can detect this even though it is so relatively uncommon. And in sort of broad terms, uh, the strategy we use is that we generate these narrative graphs based on newspaper uh, content. So that's going to be verified information. And then we generate the same sort of graphs from social media, and then we align them. And where they align well, that's indicating that the same sort of verified information is spreading in both domains. But where the social media graphs don't have an analog with the newspaper graphs, that's where we suspect you have unverified information or potentially conspiracy theories uh, emerging. So we're in the process of, of doing this research now, and we hope to have uh, something coming out in the fall. Super interesting. Um, I asked your group, what I asked actually many of your colleagues, what they would like to know from you about this. And some of the kind of social media team asked, what do you actually think was the impact of social media data in public decision-making or political decision-making? So how much did Twitter, for example, you shared earlier, how this started affect things? And their follow-up question to that was really, um, should it affect it? Like Twitter in Denmark is very a limited landscape. There's not that many people from a kind of a diverse set of the society on there. So how do you see the role of social media there? I think social media has had a huge impact uh, on uh, on the way the pandemic was managed, and especially I think on uh, on on the development of of the science. It it seems that a lot of the science uh, dialogue happened on on social media, and 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 therefore it was very uh, crucial for. For actually understanding what what is going on, what is the virus we are we are facing, uh, I I've been in in many meetings uh, where uh, tweets were referenced uh, when when we were actually trying to discuss well what is the what is the level of threat we are facing uh, right now. So I think uh, I, I think social media has played a huge role and and perhaps. 
this is this is the first time we really have had a, a global public sphere because uh, everyone was focusing on the same problem, namely COVID, and and they and and people met on on social media such as as Twitter. And I, th- I think there was huge discrepancies. So Rebecca and me are both non-Danes within Denmark. Um, and we discussed a lot in the office how it's affecting us having both information streams coming from different countries and, and how that changed our behavior. And I think I remember correctly that you also looked into discrepancies between genders or minority groups. So kind of what is the role of trust generally in Danish society or kind of beyond? And what is the role of for different groups of people within that society? Um, one of the challenges with social media research uh, compared to, say, doing um, ethnographic interviews or survey-based research is that it's very hard to collect reliable demographic information for the, the people that you're studying. So um, one of the limitations of the work we do with, with social media data is that we often don't really know much about uh, the people that we're studying besides you know, what they put out there in their tweets. Um, there's certainly some, you know, sociolinguistic analysis you might be able to do to extrapolate certain uh, features about about an individual, but um, we we haven't really done that. And also, um, there are a lot of um, both ethical and um, legal and logistical uh, barriers to to you know looking deeper into the the person behind, say, the tweet or the Facebook post. Um, which is also why a lot of our um, data and our results, it's you know, it's aggregated. It's it's patterns and trends and um, and statistics rather than you know the actual content of people's social media posts. But I think it's a really important question, and it's something that um, I think we should we should be we should be very aware of um, that you know one's experience of of the pandemic and of the stringency of of um, COVID. Um, mitigation policies, it's experienced very differently based on um, the intersections of your you know, identity within a society and can affect some people more than others. Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think perhaps that's that's one of the, the real lessons of, of this uh, crisis. If, if we didn't, if we didn't understand uh, or realize it before, then for sure we need to take inequalities uh, seriously. And uh, both because the, um, the, the pandemic has hit different segments so differently and the experience have been so different, uh, but, but also that that the resources to cope uh, uh, with with a crisis like that is uh, is is very very differently distributed uh, across different groups. So I think this this really has been a wake up call uh, for for many uh, about uh, inequalities that exist in in society, also in a society like the Danish. And um, so so I think from our conversation so far, there's this idea that there was a lot of quantitative research data harvesting, but you actually have a huge subset of the group who are anthropologists, ethnographers, who are working specifically interviewing people. Um, how have these two kind of information streams come together in your project? Yes, so I think one of the, uh, again, one other sort of pretty unique part of, of this project is, is the fact that 
that the idea was to use all the tools in the in the social science or humanities toolkit. So we have, as as Rebecca has been talking about, the big data uh, analysis. I've been doing a lot of uh, survey research, and and then we have ethnographic uh, research, and and we have been been trying to to sort of uh, work together. Uh, also in, in the public dissemination, uh, phase of the project where we are saying, okay, so next, next week or next month, we'll be focusing on this. And then we, we, all, all the teams go and, and do their thing and, and then say, what is the insights that we can pr- produce on, on this topic, like, uh, testing or the Corona passport, uh, and, and, and then get a, a more, um, uh, sort of complete understanding of it, and I think this has been a a good example of of how different methods do uh, have different strengths and different weaknesses. And by putting them together, you you actually get a deeper understanding of what you are uh, what you are uh, considering. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that is um, one of the big strengths of the of the Hope Project is the fact that it's been so interdisciplinary, and. Um, I found our we had weekly um, meetings of of the whole you know diverse research group throughout the, the sort of acute pandemic period, um, and I would come in with results from from the week's sort of social media mining, and we'd find something like okay, uh, discourse about the Corona Pass is trending really negatively this week, and we see that these are the words that people are are focusing on, uh, but we don't really know why. We don't really know why these are so negatively valenced this week as opposed to a few weeks before. Um, and then, you know, the ethnographers would chime in and they'd done a series of kind of what they call rapid ethnographies, talking to people um, here at AU or on the street in Aarhus, asking them, um, you know, do you have a, an active corona pass right now? Like, how are you, you know, how are you feeling about it? Do you think it's effective? Does it make you feel safe? Is it burdensome? And kind of learning about um, you know what the what the pain points were for people or how they were feeling about the sort of policies at that moment in time, and it could be incredibly insightful. It really helped me to interpret my own data. Talking to kind of one of the anthropologists, they mentioned work with them, um, working with people that are at high risk as well. So actually finding data from people that are more effective than others. So Denmark had quite loose restrictions compared to other countries. Um, what did you find there? So one of the, this is another good example of, of uh, how these different methods are, are sort of very important together because the surveys that, that we were doing or the, or the social media analysis is often they are sort of giving a, a sense of what is it that the majority thinks, but, but we need uh, things like the ethnography uh, to, to get into, to well, what, what are it, what what are the feelings and the thoughts of particular groups and and one of the one of the the insights that came out of of this conversation uh, or these studies of of more vulnerable groups was that 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 they were uh, having this sense that suddenly everyone knows how it is to be me uh, so for some of the vulnerable groups there was also a sense of of empowerment in in the fact that that now everyone had had tried to be in their shoes for a little while. So relating empathy a bit more than to others. Exactly. 
That is, uh, yeah, I think really meaningful. I also, um, one thing that Meta shared with me, who's part of your group, was also that, that there was this weird navigation of people saying now it's safe and then suddenly being in a whole different situation. So for a long time, people felt more safe during the pandemic than most of us, I think, yes. who are at risk. And then now that we're moving out of it, it becomes more risky since everyone else is behaving, let's say, normal again. So, um, but it kind of, Wrapping our conversation up a bit, where are you guys going now? So the project is not over. This is uh, just the beginning, it feels like. So you're working on conspiracy, Rebecca. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm I'm working on. Um, so yes, now we're transitioning away a little bit from the sort of uh, rapid reporting and real-time media monitoring. We actually still have all of our sort of data harvesting um, infrastructure set up, and that will continue think in perpetuity. It's a really great resource to have a near comprehensive collection of Danish news and social media. But now we're sort of focusing more on on, on producing um, research. Uh, so the conspiracies research is, is one part of that. Um, also looking at um, kind of some meta research on, you know, what can you do when you collect, um, you know, two years worth of, I think we're at over 140 million um, tweets and over 50,000 Facebook posts from um, from the Scandinavian countries. Like, what what can we do with that? Both in terms of answering social and behavioral science research questions you know, about COVID-19 or other social issues, but also in terms of just general um, advancement of natural language processing for these languages. So I'm also still... Um, you know, a linguist specializing in NLP. And so I have a really vested interest in improving um, the tools that we have for um, automated language processing of these relatively under-resourced languages like Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish. So actually a lot of the research that I'm putting out now is is kind of more um, general language technology and NLP model research. So that's been a great sort of side effect of working on this project. And um, how about you, Michael? Yes, so uh, a lot of the research that that uh, I did with 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 my part of the team in the in the initial phases was focused on on how to to communicate in a in a way that will make people uh, sort of realize the importance of of uh, complying and so on. Um, since since then, the the research interests has sort of moved more into the into the darker uh, areas of of uh, of the pandemic in terms of polarization uh prejudice uh, and and these kinds of problems that are created uh, by the pandemic uh and and one of the things that we are investing uh, in right now is is uh polarization of prejudice across vaccination lines between people who are vaccinated and and unvaccinated so that's a that's a topic that we are investing quite a bit in uh, right now but but one of the things that i'm also beginning to to uh, think about is well how can we use the insights uh, from from the whole project and from the pandemic more more general how can we use them in the context of other crises so for example what can we use uh, from uh, health communication and what we now know about good health communication in the context of the climate crisis, for example. So that's that's also one of the directions that I want to go. Can I just add something? Um, I 
just want to mention an, another line of research um, that I'm undertaking has to do with taking a kind of linguistic lens to health and science communication. Um, so this is in collaboration with uh, some of my colleagues in, in linguistics and anthropology. Um, so we're looking at um, both the social media uh, data that, that I've collected, which is very large scale, but also the results of um, cross-country interviews on uh, topics like vaccine skepticism um, to sort of look at where the places where um, people's skepticism seems to arise from a sort of breakdown in, in public health communication or misunderstanding. And what we've kind of found that I find quite interesting is that um, oftentimes it's less um, concerted disinformation or misinformation, but more genuine mis misunderstanding um, of scientific uh, communication that ends up fueling skepticism on issues like, like vaccination. So um, I'm working on a project with my former IMC colleague, uh, Lisa Marie Anderson, on um, we're looking at how language around evidence hierarchies in evidence-based medicine has actually um, ended up leading to unforeseen misunderstandings in public discourse about interventions like vaccines. So specifically, the problem seems to be this label of gold standard applied to placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials. And what we found is that um, RCT in the gold standard language has actually become sort of a, um, a focal point of some anti-vaccine or vaccine skeptical discourse online, um, which is, you know, which is strange because you kind of stereotypically, you think of the anti-vaccine movement as sort of uh, anti-science, and yet here they are using these highly technical scientific terms. Um, but what seems to have happened is that um, the gold standard label, it, it really seems to implicate that there is a best sort of evidence for an intervention. And so naturally you want the best type of, of intervention. You don't want something that's less than that. But of course, for logistical or ethical reasons, it's often impossible to uh, subject a new vaccine to a randomized, uh, placebo-blind, um, randomized clinical trial. So people are using that as a reason to sort of reject or espouse skepticism about vaccines. Um, and this seems to be a really good example of where um, health and science communication breaks down. So the fact that we have these this hierarchy has been communicated to the public, but the sort of logic behind it and the fact that it's not a fixed hierarchy, that it is relative and that it is context sensitive, that has not been communicated. And as a result, one of the um, sort of big um, innovations of evidence-based medicine is now being used against an evidence-based intervention. So I find that really interesting. And um, Lisa Marie is, is trained in philosophy. I'm, as I said, trained somewhat in theoretical linguistics. Um, and so we're taking this, this sort of uh, very humanistic lens to um, this, this issue in, in public health uh, communication. It's also bringing us back to our conversation about information and how information is shared. So we had the case of AstraZeneca um, that some of your colleagues mentioned when I asked them about kind of what the whole project is about. And many of them said there was a lot of um, communication going around of why it was discontinued in some countries and not in others. So that has also clearly given some kind of mistrust in information giving out, even though that information might have been valid in, in, in the separate countries. Mm -hmm. So I think it's super fascinating and uh, all the best for the next uh, months ahead. Is there anything that you would like people to take away from this episode, kind of 
looking back at our conversation or from your project where you're like, this is the one message I really want people to listen to? So I think uh, one uh, one important takeaway, uh, at, uh, but maybe it's more a takeaway for, for myself uh, than, than for the listeners, but that is the, the importance of the dissemination. Uh, I, I have really sort of realized that through uh, this this project that um, we we are uh, indebted uh, to society and and we need to do what we can to uh, to tell society about what it is that we are are finding um, and then of course you need to to communicate that in a, in a way that that acknowledges the uh, uncertainties and so on. So just as as the authorities need to communicate well when they are addressing the public, so are we uh, in a situation where we need to communicate in transparent uh, ways, acknowledging all the problems and all the uncertainties when we when we talk about our research? But we do need to talk about our research. I feel like it's a perfect wrap-up of our season. It's, it's research and interaction. Um, Rebecca, how about you? Yeah, I completely agree with what with what Michael said. And I have to say that working on this project has definitely made me um, a better scientist uh, because of this um, this need to not only you know turn my research results into publications, but also to communicate them to a public audience in a you know in a transparent way um, that also you know, makes it clear what are the shortcomings, what are the problems, what are the unanswered questions and um, sort of unresolved issues. Um, and I think that that's, um, that that's been a really good exercise. And I think I'm going to take that forward in whatever you know, research I do. And I think we can all, we can all be better at that as scientists and researchers. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to plug a few things that you guys been up to because I know you're too modest to probably do it yourself. Michael, you also ran a podcast with um, Oliver Scott Curry on political decision-making morality. Um, we'll link that in the show notes so people can follow up. Um, you also have quite a few accolades, so I'll uh, link your pure profile so people can follow up on what you've been up to. Um, and I think Rebecca has one of the most diverse set of publications in the last year. She's written an incredible paper on peer review together with one of our colleagues, Christine Parsons, that um, I highly recommend to any academic to read on how to do better peer review. And I, I don't know even know how much I could mention, so I'll just link in the show notes. But is there anything else you would like to share with people that they should engage with? Um, the ROF conference is coming up, so the um, political science department has a group on Political hostility, I think if I research on political hostility. Yeah, I'm just um, trying to make sense of the abbreviation in my head. Um, so we link that if you want to follow up on what they've been up to. And then uh, I'd like to encourage listeners, if they're interested in actually interacting with some of the, um, the, the social media data I've been talking about, um, we have some new interactive dashboards um, for people to use that are on the HOPE website, um, both for Danish uh, Twitter data and English Twitter data. So... Language does not matter, um, and and I think those those can give some, yeah, some. They're an interesting kind of historical record. Um, they can take you on a sort of retrospective view of the last two years of of the pandemic, and and I think they're we put a lot of work into them. I think they're actually quite interesting to to work with. Um, we also tend to post um, updates and announcements of recent papers on the Hope blog, so make sure to follow that. 
fantastic. I will link that. And thank you so much for coming. This has been such a joy to dig into your project together. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Savannah. This podcast is edited and produced by Kirsi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer, and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Karg. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.